You may not know this six foot five, two hundred and forty-five pound burly man. We call him Big Bear. He looks like he could play tight end in the NFL or wrestle in the WWE. Drew Westervelt is a pro lacrosse player, non-traditional in height and weight. However, he's also the founder of Hex Performance, an advanced laundry detergent for athleisure wear, and claims there's a real problem with mass laundry solutions out there. They actually do not kill bacteria in our clothes. Rather, they fragrance them, and Hex has the solution. Drew's a dear friend of mine. He's super impressive, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you. Enjoy. When we launched this podcast, we launched our website, suitinguppodcast.com. I encourage all of you to check it out for show notes, links, etc. And when we built the Paul Rabel Experience and Rabel Events, we also launched a website focused on colorful, creative, and effective digital solutions to appropriately build our business. Your website is your platform. And for all of you entrepreneurs out there, I want you to check out Squarespace. Squarespace does a number of things really well. And as an entrepreneur, you can launch your business and create a beautiful website or online store with their award-winning templates. They're also an all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Squarespace provides award-winning 24-7 customer support, which is a huge pain point for most people that outsource website design. You don't have to worry about that with their customer support engine. And they're flexible for any kind of website. Squarespace is used by a wide range of creatives, people, and businesses. Musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, podcasters like me, and more. And now here's how you can get aboard Squarespace for listening today. Use offer code RABEL for 10% off your first purchase of a website and domain. That's RABEL, R-A-B-I-L. Visit squarespace.com, use offer code RABEL, and get 10% off your first purchase of a website and domain. That's Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. So we're sitting here in our Baltimore offices Second time recording a podcast here, and I have Drew Westervelt, who is a pro lacrosse player in multiple geographies, MLL and NLL. I'll I'll get into the differences distinguishing both pro leagues. He's a former world champion with Team USA. We played together on that team in 2010. He is huge in stature, 6'5", 200 and probably 40 pounds. I wish. A goal scorer, though, right? So I, I think the Zlatan Ibrahimovic, for all of you soccer fans out there, uh, soft hands for a guy that is, is of his size and stature is unique to our sport as it is soccer. He's a record setter. He went to the University of Maryland Baltimore College, which we all know as uh, UMBC. Is that right? Did I say that? I believe it is University of Maryland Baltimore County. Baltimore which, County. Which is even more ridiculous. Okay. He's a co-founder of Hex Performance. Uh, That company is what we're going to dive deep into. And I pulled this from his website. Drew's rejection of the status quo and his experience in team management, both on and off the field, has led to the development of this product. And he is changing what clean means for laundry today. Drew is a dear friend of mine and very unique modern athlete to this space. And I want to be clear that there's no place card holder here, ladies and gentlemen. There's also no branded unfair advantage, which traditionally we've seen with a lot of our guests looking at the power of their platform audience and influencer marketing as a way to enter the space that they're in. I think Drew has built his company off of other on-field attributes like work ethic, 
um, certainly an, an, an amazing passion that he has for problem solving and storytelling in this space. Uh, and we'll dive into more as we approach certain topics. But this is the duality of the modern athlete. So, Drew, let's start with your upbringing. Sure. You and I both grew up with learning differences. Talk about yours. Yeah, I went to, uh, I grew up in Bel Air, Maryland. I uh, went to a, a small Catholic school there and um, struggled. Homework was awful every night and really had trouble comprehending what I was really trying to do and putting thoughtfulness into my work. Uh, so that was a pretty big uh, barrier, especially with my parents, were just like, hey, this, something's not working here. So got tested um, for dyslexia, and obviously that was, that was the issue. And was really fortunate, and I got the ability to go to a school called Odyssey in uh, Baltimore. I think your foundation actually supports yeah. now, which is incredible. Um, when so, did you get screened for dyslexia? Third grade. Third grade. So I did first through third grade and struggled, and then I went fourth through eighth at Odyssey. And it was a, it was a small school in Baltimore, on Rolling Avenue, right near Hopkins. Yeah. Um, it's like eight kids in a class, a lot of one-on-one you had one-on-one tutoring, and then you had your normal classes. Um, and they do like a lot of creative learning, which I really love about the learning difference private education market. For example, like a history class isn't reading from a book. It's a lot of times reenacting sure. the Constitution. Sure. I think, learning. I think for me, reading isn't the issue. It's reading comprehension was the issue. So mm -hmm. I can read something, but recalling what I read didn't exist. Right. Right. So I, was, I read the words. I can, it was not like everyone thinks I read backwards or whatever, but I can read the words unless if it's something I'm not interested in, I don't comprehend it. So you were always able to read the words. There were no misplacement of letters, which is, can be the case sometimes. Can for, be, yeah. I mean, there's, there's times where, where, where I do that with numbers and things yeah. like that, but you know, not a glaring issue, but it was just, it was more comprehension of being right. like, hey, I read this, I'm understanding what I'm reading and I can either put that forth and teach you about it or, or I have no idea what I just, what I just read. Yeah. It's really interesting. I, I have what's called a reading and auditory processing disorder. And I think it, that comprehension or processing is a big part of, of what you're mentioning. And even in sports, uh, one thing that I, I often heard from my coach and uh, multiple coaches and they drill this in practices, you're not listening. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're, they're really explaining it the way that they intend to when they say listen, because I used to, fight back and say, I'm absolutely listening. My mm -hmm. ears are perked. I want to do well. I want to win. Mm -hmm. But what they meant to say is you're not comprehending or you're not processing what I'm saying. And Correct. I think we hear uh, a drill or we hear a slide package or a route that we need to run. We don't process it and we don't do it. I think furthermore, once you see it, it's immediately comprehended, right? If I do something or if I'm walked through the play versus drawn the play on a board, it's a very different mm level of comprehension for me. And it's similar to, I think it goes back to either it's lacrosse or business or whatever you're talking about. If I can teach someone else about it, I've comprehended it. Yeah. If I can articulate it back to you, um, then I've got it. It's just how I get to that point, whether it's, it's, it's absolutely not, here's the, here's the, the syllabus, read it and you're going to know what you need to do. Or, yeah. or here's the playbook. Like that's, mind you, I'll be in, you know, Chinese. Yeah. Well, we've recorded over a dozen athletes, and you're the first one to sit down with a notepad and are like taking notes. I imagine that I hope at least they're they're podcast related, like some topics that you want to cover, unless like you're on the side and you're closing a deal or your next subsequent <laughs> round of, of raising with hex. But 
Yeah. So it, talk about your note taking and when did you start developing that skill? I, mean, I have books and books and books and that's all I do every day, whether it's uh, what I need to get done or what my thought is or there's really no rhyme or reason to a lot of it. I try to keep it neat, but a lot of times it, it strays from that. But for for me, it just kind of keeps me me level on what I'm trying to get accomplished or what I haven't got accomplished. Um, if, if I write it down, I remember it, and I continue to look at it throughout the day. If I don't write it down, it doesn't get done. Yeah. It's as simple as that, and I forget about it. Yeah. I think style of note-taking is really interesting uh, because it, it's an artistic form of the way that we process or would like to remember mm-hmm. particular um, intel sure. or, or task that we're assigning ourselves. Is that... A little bit having to do with any attention deficit disorder or I'm sure. hyper deficit disorder? I'm sure. Um, I mean, if I flip back through these things, it's like it would be interesting to do over the last couple of years because it, it kind of – it's all about like the, the journey for, or at least currently of what I'm thinking through of what I think makes sense for my business or what, mm. I've, what I've gathered through fact-finding and whether it's working with an agency or working with an individual or working with a retailer and kind of thinking through how that relationship should work. Yeah. Um, pros, cons, and how our decisions are made. So I don't know of any other way how to keep my thoughts straight than to kind of constantly put pen to paper and figure out, is there logic behind it? And, and could I articulate it back to you about why I want to do it or not, right? And when you were in school at the Odyssey School and and then – subsequently at UMBC, um, what was your approach to academics and athletics? Or was there a time where it was weighted in one direction more than the other? I mean, frankly, I think it's always been weighted towards athletics. It's always been, I think, for a lot of athletes, a release uh, where, you're, where you're confident, right? Like, Odyssey was pretty cool because we started the lacrosse team there, and it was a bunch of guys like me that were love sports but struggled in school. When you say started it, what we, do you mean? We didn't have a team, so you guys just so in fifth grade it was like we had like thirty dudes and everybody wanted to play. Everybody played. We just didn't have a school team. Got it. We had BL. We had Gilman. We had all these great lacrosse schools around us, and we were like, yeah, you know, the special school right around the corner. So we're like, we'll start a team. And a lot of our teachers were big Carolina players back in the day. Huh. Um, Mike Thomas. Okay. Um, he was a big Carolina player. His mom yeah. was the secretary. So there's a natural fit for coaches. Yeah. So we had a bunch of like great staff and we put a team together. We ended up like beating up on BL and friends and some other teams. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a release. We, we had something to do after, after school, but school was actually not a at that, that was like a change in my from an academic perspective because Odyssey wasn't a struggle. It was it was you didn't you weren't you didn't not want to go to school because there was nothing to be scared of when you got there. It's not like you you weren't prepared for something, right? That was the worst thing for my academic career was like knowing you had something, knowing you weren't prepared, and knowing you couldn't prepare yourself. Right. And the teachers weren't able to help you prepare because there was thirty other people they had to worry about. So lacrosse is it, one of its traditional hotbeds that are here in Baltimore, and then. Long Island in sure. New York, I often tell folks it's not Maryland and New York, uh, it's Baltimore and Long Island because there are certain outskirts in each state that have never seen lacrosse before. What attracted you to the sport outside of the heritage of growing up in Baltimore? It's, I played uh, competitive baseball and I tried catching. I didn't know that. 
And yeah. you were a really good soccer goalie. I played soccer. That was in high school. I, I played <laughs> and, and, and in middle school, but I didn't play goalie till high school. But um, when I before lacrosse, my brother was a big baseball player. Um, baseball for me, I had it wasn't enough action, so I either had to pitch or I had to catch. And I played in fourth grade or third grade. We played for the Hartford Sox, which was like a equivalent of AAU basketball. Okay, I played sixty games one summer. Oh, Jesus! Exactly, and I was like, yeah. One, it needed a time limit. Two, yeah. I didn't touch the ball enough. And three, I didn't have a passion for it. Right. So I was like, I'm out. And then I get this great opportunity to go to Odyssey. School is great now. I'm not hating, hating life or yeah. hating academics. Then there's this great idea from one of my classmates to start a lacrosse team. I'm like, I'm in. Let's do it. So picked it up in fourth grade because of Odyssey. And you like it because you were really good at it? Or were there areas like I, we always get this question, why do you fall in love with lacrosse versus sticking it out? We know why baseball's out, but like say soccer or football or basketball. Yeah. Or is I it mean, just, yeah. I think I love, especially at that time in my life, lacrosse is, for me was very different than lacrosse is today for a lot of youth. There wasn't club teams. So I mm. played lacrosse in lacrosse season. Then I played AAU basketball. Then I played competitive tennis and I played, you know, travel soccer. So I loved being an athlete. I loved playing all these sports. And for me, lacrosse, I think you hear it a lot. It has a lot of sports morphed into it. What I loved about the lacrosse was um, the time you needed to spend to be confident with stick skills. And that's something I found really interesting when I picked it up in fourth grade. It was like, this is a really cool sport. Yeah. And at the time, lacrosse wasn't easily accessible from digital platforms you could watch saturday it was like you know the toyota lacrosse game of the week and you look forward to it and you'd watch abc it. in baltimore yeah you'd watch and then you go in your backyard and emulate you know connor ford ripping a shot or yeah. whoever was playing at that time i yeah. remember yeah and then you'd be like i'm gonna go try and emulate that you go in your backyard and it was a very yeah interesting process and, and why umbc i didn't have a lot of options um from where you were i didn't recruited. have this stature at the time weight Size? Or, weight or height yeah but you were tall and I was tall and lanky, lanky. Yeah, in high school I was like six two, six three, one hundred sixty five pounds, one hundred seventy yeah. pounds. Yeah, um, played for John Carroll in high school, so we were in the B conference in this Baltimore area. Um, played soccer and basketball in high school, and, and loved that as well. And and I, the only places I got really looked at was um, UMBC, Delaware, and Drexel. Okay, and Mundorf was my chaperone at UMBC. Him and Andy Gallagher. What do you I mean lo- chaperone? Like my uh, for. Uh, your, on your recruiting visit? visit? Yeah. No. I thought Brendan Mundorf was your age. He's a year older. He's a year and older. And so is Andy. Huh. And you know Andy and Brendan yeah. well. And they were my, they lived together their freshman year at UMBC. And I'm like, I love these guys. Yeah. So, so your I, recruiting visit. I felt like, yeah, this is where I feel comfortable. Yep. Um, you know, there was benefits to Drexel and Delaware that probably had better facilities at the time and things like that. Maybe mm-hmm. a better college experience, if you want to say it that way. But I felt really comfortable with those guys. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Relationships were really important. And, and you led the country, you're a top five scorer in the country at UMBC. And then you were drafted, I see, number four overall in 2007. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. Across. Why was that a surprise? I think it was Brendan's. I think it was Brendan allowed that to happen. Because well, Brennan was drafted the year prior and had a great rookie season. By Brian Reese. Well, you were the f- fifth leading scorer in the NCAA. So I'll be honest. I'm sure that had something to do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I think still it was, um, you know, we had a different college um, experience than you did at Hopkins, right? We made it to 
two years we made it to the first round and then the quarterfinals. And then we lost to Delaware. So we never really had that, you know, like we made some great runs. It was awesome to be in yeah. the finals. And I think that kind of. You don't have the notoriety. No, no. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, we were, we were good, but we didn't really we beat Maryland, which was a big win, but we didn't really shock anybody. Yeah. But, but you look at, uh, this is really interesting to me because while pro lacrosse is, if you were to look at the economics of it and time spent, it's a part-time pro league. And that's different than the mainstream sports like the sure. NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL. Uh, but the strategy around drafting from GMs to VPs of teams is still the same. And it's there's there's a little bit of value prop in the conference looking at NFL playing in the mm-hmm. SEC. Um, but there's more value prop in being able to decipher – uh, skill sets that transition well to pros, and in your case, having a hard shot, having great having great stick work and great size, equaling potential durability. When we'll talk about the ten seasons that you've played, I think they got it right. And now, resources committed in MLL is far less than NFL, but you know, parents at these events that I'm with, they're saying, "Hey, my my kid's playing Division three, Division two lacrosse, and are they ever going to play pro lacrosse?" And I say, hey, look at the NFL, look at the NBA. There's guys that have played all over, guys that are playing in Europe now that are all-stars. You want to know what I really believe happened? Okay. I had no thought of playing pro lacrosse until the end of my senior year. Yeah. Didn't even cross my mind. Brendan had been doing it. I'm like, I don't I had never heard from anyone. Didn't know if I thought I'd move on into the, you know, the working world, whatever. And that was fine with me at the time. Um, I got a call, like, randomly from, you know, Doug Locker well. Yeah. And he was at San Francisco at the time. He's Doug like, Locker's hey. a legend amongst GMs and pro and lacrosse. He's like, you interested in playing Doug. to San Francisco? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I didn't know. I, you haven't heard from anybody. Yeah, that sounds, love, yeah. To, love to do it. So I was like, that was kind of interesting. This is like the latter half of my senior year at UMBC. Fast forward, go to the MLL combine, play decently, got picked up from Brian Reese in Denver. And I, I attribute a lot of it cause to Brendan's success. I really believe I really believe I would never have played more than one game. I went out for my first practice and played probably the best. They put me in midfield and I had like two or three goals in practice dodging down the alley, which I've never had in my life. Right. Like one was left-handed, like stuff that never happens. So you're a right well in practice. So for 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 our audience out there that doesn't know lacrosse, dodging down the alley would be um you know, Drew is an attackman, so he's pretty much like a forward in soccer, and he was playing out of the midfield. So going from like a you know Cristiano <laughs> Ronaldo, you do. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm having really trouble explaining it. But dodging down an alley means like running down the side and shooting on the run. And Drew is more of a time and room, uh, feet planted power Correct. shooter. Correct. So they were asking you to do a skill that you hadn't done before. Yeah, they had guys that were already had a position on attack. You know, this new guy from. Who knows who I was from? Or it was like guys like Sims and Sonky and Brian Langtree. Guys that like, yeah. you know, they go in and make funny. It was a great locker room. Yeah. So I have this practice that I like, might have blacked out the whole practice. Played well. <laughs> you're excited probably. Yeah, yeah I was pumped. You're in this awesome field. You're in Mile High Stadium at the yeah. time. It's perfect grass. So and the owners me- of the Outlaws are the same owners <clears throat> as the Broncos. Correct. So they give me a – I play that next night, and they put me on attack. They move one of the – you know, veteran attackmans to midfield, and, and I play attack. I had four and three. Yeah. Like, it was the f- most fun game I, I remember because it was all fast breaks. It was fun. 
picked the ball up the end line. Where was all this stuff happened? We played with all these older guys that yeah. just ran. Yeah, and that's really why I think I still play. Was I had a I got lucky and played it well at practice. They gave me an opportunity, and I somehow put up points. And I stayed somewhat consistent throughout my career. But yeah. I really believe if you look at it now, there's great players that come to practice, and we've seen it for ten years. Oh yeah, and probably have a bad practice and have a bad first game, and they're gone. It didn't mean they didn't couldn't have a great career. I mean, I think that is the same in all industries, sure. really. In sports, we see it um, more often because as veterans, we can feel skill and you see mental lapses and it translates directly into goals or assists or, mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. uh, there are matchup um, discrepancies. That sometimes if you're a rookie, you go out there and you've got the best defender on, <laughs> on in the league, just happen to be playing against you on the other team, and it's not a good showing. Right. Um, I do think that there's a lot of sports psychology to what you're talking about, which is interesting in like having nothing to lose. Sure. Um, if you were now it's, it's, in, you know, you're here, you are, uh, the fourth overall pick feeling like, Hey, I'm lucky to be here. So you're describing your experience like you were the 40th overall pick, but you were the fourth, but it still felt that way to you. Like you were the 40th. I didn't feel like I should have been the fourth. But you were. But I was. Yeah. And I was like, I was kind of shocked because I'm sitting there with guys that I played against and with in college that were, had much more, much more impressive careers and much more impressive games. Yeah. So you still had nothing to lose. Correct. And there was that mentality. And you, you often are citing like rolling the ball out, running. And, and, uh, and pro lacrosse is very similar to the NBA in terms of the change of pace and style versus college so college basketball you have all the schemes the full court presses the slowdown of the big 10 offense in the nba these guys run up and down they say they don't play defense but it's it's really a, a, probably for a separate show talking about the dynamic of the athlete and basically what i think is impossible to play the caliber style of defense you see in college in nba because the range that these guys have is incredible and their ability to, to thrash and their size. And I think it's similar in pro lacrosse or frankly, in other pro sports where you just have the premium athlete with more range, more skill, more speed. So you have to just change and, and, and almost give more cushion defensively, but that's what you're referencing. And, and, uh, and you played for 10 seasons. We, you and I often kid about fitness cause it's not necessarily a part of your routine, nor is, nor is nutrition, <laughs> but but I think those. It's not they, funny. <laughs> <laughs> but but I find it interesting in that you were able to play for ten seasons at an all pro all star level. So what is it in this stick ball sport? I'd imagine it's similar to hockey that you lean on as your biggest value. Well, first of all not taking fitness and nutrition seriously is a huge regret of mine because I think I would have had a, I think I would have been a much more well-rounded player and more effective. I think I had a short, I have a short sighted look at, I was, I was consistent enough to be acceptable to myself, but I was never willing to put in what I should have to be. It's the reason I didn't play on the 2014 national team. I had gotten to an age where my fitness had deteriorated enough and I wasn't willing to work on it. And there were younger guys that came in that performed better. I think there's a role that I morphed myself into of this shooter and this feeder, sometimes a feeder, 
most likely, most of times, a shooter and, and a distributor in, in fast break situations. Um, and man up is where I scored a lot of goals. I got that way because of my fitness, not because I wanted to be there. I, I should have been a Dodger. I should have used my body better. Yeah. And that's a big regret of mine. Because you were a Dodger in college. Yeah, yeah. very much so. And um, it's something that also I, I worry about after sports, right? You don't want to do anything good enough to be get get by, right? Yep. So that's something I've been working on, right? And is establishing routines that are better fitness, better health, executing at a higher level. All of those things are things that I'm working on and I'm frankly struggling with because it, it's HEX or MLL or national teams are very similar in that there, there's no evergreen to it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a topic that I joke about and I'm big bear and all this, this stuff, but I mean, you can say shit and, and shit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's a, it's something in hindsight. I wish I, um, you know, cause you were a champion of it, right? Yeah. You, you, you had, you found assets like Jay Dyer. Yeah. He's my strength and conditioning correct. coach. Yeah. And, and Ken Johnson and provided full access to guys like me that were buddies with you. And yes. some very much took advantage of it, right? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's also worth flagging that um, your bandwidth became um, your available bandwidth shrunk as you uh, went through the process of of discovering the entrepreneurial blood that that you've always had, I, I believe at least, and and launching this company Hex uh, back in 2014. Is that right, roughly? Yeah. So you had mentioned the national team, that being in 2014. And there was work leading up to, as any uh, startup founder or co-founders know, uh, prior to signing your paperwork, be it as an LLC, S-Corp, C-Corp of your choosing, um, there's all the concepting, there's the you know, discussions on, on structuring from a cap table standpoint, from brand, how you're going to operate. Um, and so for you, Limited bandwidth, you had to make a decision. And a lot of times, I think with some of our other athlete entrepreneur guests, is that they're cash flowed enough from their on-field wages to build a team to support these multiple initiatives while giving them the bandwidth they need every day to train and eat well. And we're at a shortage of that in an alternative sport. So we really have to either grind and, and find more time and sleep less or make certain sacrifices, which you did. Sure. And I, and I talked about earlier in the show that many athletes leverage brand network or audience. And my guess is that you've leveraged opportunity work, work, work ethic and intuition. So launching Hex Performance, talk about the idea and process first. So it's, it's been a, a very much a living document. I think the insight that I had five, six years ago has always been right. It's how you bring it to market that's been the challenge. And you mentioned um, my own network isn't significant. So it became how do you create a community of people who care about the problem you're solving? Because I'm in, I'm in the CPG space, right? I'm, not a pro- I'm a product, not a service. Yep. So the original insight was that I wanted to provide a product that actually cleaned and protected this new type of fabric or gear that emerged quite significantly when we became professional athletes. And in college, 
I was very much supplied cottons and champion t-shirts and never had issues cleaning them other than my gear. Gear being synthetic, which is a plastic. So I wanted to figure out, it felt like all I was doing was putting fragrance on it and there was a real health issue here that if I'm not cleaning what's in my pads or my apparel, then that's mold, mildew, bacteria that's alive and well in it. So the original idea was to do fields and turf and locker rooms and weight rooms and potentially gear. And that was under a different name. Yes. It was under, it started as Odor Armor. Odor Armor. Then we quickly got a cease and assist from Under Armor. <laughs> okay. Because we spelled it A-R-M-O-U-R, but I own the domain. Did you, did you cease and desist because it was like, hey, we've got this corporate giant and let's do it? Or of did you course. Feel like, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't like, hey, we're, we're fine here. Or it was probably both. I had no financial backing. I had right. nothing. I was just, I was like, this would be, you know, at the time I thought naming the product something that was descriptive of what it did would be intelligent. Right. After we lost that, that name, um, we didn't really think about it because we didn't know if this was going to be a sports specialty product or a grocery product or what. So we named it Odor Balance, but it really didn't have any meaning to it. Um, from then, uh, we, we moved the product. So what, we've, what we really realized and why Hex, we, why we have so much passion around it is we believe that fabrics have significantly changed what they used to be. Yeah. People have challenged cleaning them and they blame the fabric. What really has changed is fabric has changed and detergents haven't. We never had a problem cleaning cottons. Now there's this huge athleisure boom. Everyone's wearing synthetics everywhere. Yep. They can't clean them and then they end up throwing them out because they stink. Most of the time we don't know what our short, shirts are made of. We just know they, they, they feel really comfortable now. Sure. And it's like a blended product and Correct. it can be a blended of a number of things, right? Yeah, sure. So natural fibers are like cotton. Synthetics are plastic. So you're actually wearing a hard surface, but they feel really good. Right. So like 60 to 70% of, what, of the fabrics people are wearing right now are... Um, Synthetic or plastic. So um, essentially what we did was we were like, hmm, I, I don't think traditional products are actually caring for these items. So, And people know the challenge, right? We've been in a spin class in a yoga studio, whatever, and you work out and you put that shirt right on, right? When you start sweating, it's not... It smells. It smells, right. It stinks. Sometimes I'll pull my spandex out after like two washes and like we'll put them on and immediately start right. smelling. So that was the insight. It was like fabrics have changed, detergents haven't. Why isn't anyone addressing this need with a real solution? And the only solution is heavy fragrances. Well, why do you need a fragrance to clean something when then it's not really clean if you're using a fragrance? Right. So we did some testing and we found that with traditional laundry detergents on synthetics, every successive wash had actually bacterial growth in it. And the mechanism for cleaning it was heavier fragrances. Yep. So it really wasn't cleaning anything. It was just covering it up. Yeah. So in my mind, that was like the light bulb of like, here's, here's a place to play in, right? So let me ask you though, because this, I've, to me, this feels like so disruptive in that we've basically been just deodorizing sure. our product and washes and thinking we're cleaning them. Sure. With cotton though, when it was, everyone was 100% cotton, was there actual cleaning? Yeah. Or, yeah, so it cleaned with yeah. cotton, so it's just the material base now that's what throws everyone off. And the de former detergents, the detergents out there, uh, in the archaic sense, uh, aren't capable of cleaning with new products. Well, I like mean, it's really very, killing correct. the bacteria. I mean, there's nothing sexy about laundry. It's a really old, lethargic category. No one goes in the laundry aisle and is like, excited to be like, ooh, what's new today? It doesn't right. happen. Because you've had... Millennials huge, specifically, huge, I would huge, huge I corporate suppose. giant like Procter and Gamble, Church yeah. and Doy, you know Hinkle, huge, huge, huge companies. 
that have had products for a hundred years. Yeah. That, that product technology hasn't changed. What changes what they're using it to clean. So if you think about, I mean, it's nerdy, but if you think about other cleaning categories, like if you look in the household cleaning section, there's a different cleaner for every surface in your house. Yep. Granite, wood, linoleum, whatever. And then there's all purpose, which you think are bullshit. Uh, I mean, I'm just drawing that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I <laughs> but there's a reason why there's cleaners right. for certain surfaces because certain tech chemistries work better to clean that surface. We're in a specialty market world right now, which I think bodes well for what you're going after. You say the same thing in fitness, right? Sure. No longer are people going to, or are they, I guess if it's a planet fitness, it's a Walmart of, of the fitness industry where it's a low price point enough to get a solid workout in. But like very few people are saying, Hey, I'm just going to go to the gym and freelance. There's the specialty of spin yoga, uh, camp. That's right. So we, what we're saying is like, no one's thinking different. It's already happened in all these other cleaning sections or in the beverage category. There's a different beverage for any type of lifestyle, right? And you shop that. In cleaning and laundry, everyone believes that laundry detergent's laundry detergent. It's going to work on everything. Well, there's now there's new surfaces in your laundry. So you now have synthetics. You now have cottons. You now have all these different things. And you're asking this 100-year-old technology to continue to work on it. Yeah. What well, doesn't? So they, it's gone to fragrance. So we're not trying to be the new Tide, would be good. I it would be wonderful. But I believe that there is a a a, group, a a large grouping of people who invest significantly in what their wardrobe is. That synthetic wardrobe is morphing from what you wear to the gym to your everyday wear. It's, it's yeah. in what you're wearing today. And there is a a substantial grouping of people that want that to last longer. Yeah. They don't want to throw that out. Well, I think that's that's absolutely right. I, I often wonder how. Uh, the big brands are putting such a high price point on a workout t-shirt. Now I understand the sourcing of materials is expensive, but people are investing $50 in sure. workout shirts now. And I imagine they want them to last, as you say, but it's not the fabric's fault. It's not the fabric's fault. So that's what everybody, that's where it is right now is, yeah, they're charging a lot for the fabric. W- but- what's stopping tide from, um, taking this, um, bacteria killing, uh, solution that you guys have, um, you have intellectual property on it. We do have intellectual property. The other thing is they're set up to manufacture very quickly and a lot. So what they're doing is um, they're not really willing to reformulate their entire chemistry. So what we've done, what we did was we went and sourced chemistries that work extremely well on synthetics, which penetrate a, a hard surface like a plastic and clean it and protect it. But if you can penetrate a soft, a hard surface, a soft surface is like a cotton's really easy to clean. So we go both ways, right? Yep. Whereas if you use traditional chemistries, they're very effective on cottons, but have struggle penetrating a hard surface. Hmm. So they would have to reformulate, and it's it's utilizing the complete opposite spectrum of chemistries that work well with hard surfaces. Yep. So essentially, what we really like about our product is if you were going to put the attributes in Tide or whatever traditional detergent that perform the the functions we perform to clean and protect it's like oil and water it it becomes a chemistry piece where they don't jive together so you can't just say oh that's a great attribute i'm going to build it in my formula got it 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 becomes reformulating everything or else it doesn't essentially stay stable the the other thing that we know about consumer packaged goods is it's a capital intensive space Uh, and you've raised some money yeah and so what has uh, well, let's talk about the first rounds and your strategy around them and then potentially subsequent ones. So I think like a lot of s- startups, you have to be really confident in what you're 
what you're doing and why you're doing it to ask someone for money. Yep. Right? Like that's a, that's a process I really enjoy and it's a really lengthy process because not only you have to be confident yourself, you have to be confident um, that you can articulate to them why you're doing this and why it's a good investment. And also build the relationship because no one writes a check off of an idea. They write the check off their relationship and they trust that you're actually going to execute what you say you're going to do. And yep. that was, a, that took me a while to understand. It was like a lot of people love the concept, but they didn't know who I was yet. So it, it, it's, it's a six, 12 month process of going through that play. So the, the first round of funding we, 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 we raised and was at the end of 15 and that was we were really confident that we had clarity in where we wanted to go. The, the, the strategy behind it and, and what market. And that was basically going, in, instead of going to sports specialty stores, we wanted to go to grocery because that's where we believed people buy the vast majority of their detergent and also work on .com. So mm-hmm. not go the sports specialty route. Yep. So that's what we were clear on. We were clear on the, the SKUs that we wanted to do. And we needed, we needed to clear up our back end so we could actually manufacture at the level that could support this. Yep. So our first round of funding came from a strategic that manufactures and blends the chemistries we use because we really wanted quality assurance there. Yep. So that was an equity round? It was. Yeah. And so they were actually participatory in the, the in the in taking this business to market. Correct. Which, which made was, them strategic. Which was yeah, they're strategic which was interesting because yes, they've they receive revenue off of us ordering product. Right. But they also have an equity play in the business. So and that was the, first. Correct. And then what happens next? So then uh, that was in 15, we, 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 we took to market in grocery and we got into about 2,000, 1,500 grocery stores mm. from April of, of 16 to the end of 16. So we, we used that time to go get into grocery and get our product on shelf and learn. Um, so we, we worked with Wegmans and Harris Teeters and ShopRites and really just you know, some Target and really just understood the marketplace and really figured out, are people looking for a new product? Do they even see it on the shelf? Is yeah. our packaging working? How are we going to communicate to these people? Mm-hmm. What's the pricing need to be? All of those things became trial by fire. Um, after we realized that we had some, some favorable data of people use the product and come back and buy it again, right? That's what we want to know. If someone uses it, do they have a great experience? Do they actually buy it again? That's all we wanted to figure out. If that happened, then we have a story to go sell, to go raise capital and grow. And you have a business. Right. Right. So uh, you mentioned that it's capital intensive to get into retail and support that retailer. So we had a good data set from working with them in 16. And during my financial, uh, by working with uh, raising capital in 15, where we ended up working with this strategic, yep. we also sourced family funds and private equity firms and venture capital firms. So we had some relationships there. Yep. And a lot of those relationships continued even though we made the original investment. And was that a convertible note? No, they were both, all of our um, have been equity raises. Yeah, so you had a seed, you had a family and friends, you had a seed, you had a seed plus, or you in your series A? A, we just did, your, right. you just did your A. So... Yeah, so we, we we ended up electing to go with that 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 uh, strategic investment. But we, like I said, we had sourced and and met and had decks and and and, and sent uh, financials and everything. Yep. And we kept sending financials as we went through the process to keep them in tune to what we were doing because it, it's very much a relationship, right? Not only do they want to see the idea, they want to see how you're performing, yep. and are you doing what you said you were going to do. So one of the private equity firms that we looked at for that first round is who we ended up using for the second round that closed in 
uh, March of this year. And how much did you raise? We raised two and a half million. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Andreessen often says that uh, fundraising is a 365 day a year process because you just can't say, okay, we need to go raise money. Now let's go out and do it. As you mentioned, you've incubated these relationships from start to finish. And sometimes there's a lot of back and forth and you have to be stoking them even when you're not raising. Well, I mean, for us, it's, we're lean. We're eight, we have an eight people, we're eight people, but we operate like we're 80 or 800, right? Our, every, to- everything we do is we're sales and marketing is our actual employee base, but we leverage third parties that their expertise is manufacturing, their expertise is packaging, their expertise is shipping product. Hmm. So yes, internally we're eight people, but when we leverage out into their network, it, it very much explodes into a much larger business. Do you have anxiety around being thin in that department or is that of preference? And I'll give you an example. Bill Belichick, who was our first guest on Suiting Up, prefers having a leaner staff. He has the leanest staff in the NFL really? because he's able to, he, he would prefer having fewer people taking on more tasks because that creates more trust. Sure. And fewer conversations that go around and he's able to accomplish much more in their meetings that they don't have very often sure. because they're able to trust and go out and accomplish multiple tasks individually. We just became eight people very, very recently, yeah. which has been a rewarding process to be able to hire people. Um, recently just brought in a new CEO or CFO, excuse me, um, just brought in some more marketing support. So to do really guerrilla and field tactics, get out and get into gyms, give samples, get, you know, play a different ball game than, than a, a huge, um, you know, PNG would play, right? We're never going to, we would never win with outspending. It's just not going to happen. So you yeah. got to be more authentic. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, influencer marketing is a big thing that we believe in because I think word of mouth advocacy is so much more powerful than a branded message. Yeah. I, and you know, we, as, as introing your company, and identifying the problem and, and the product and the service that you can deliver that can solve that problem, education is probably your biggest hurdle. Sure. Because in this space, you don't have but probably 10 words or fewer to use on a package. Mm-hmm. And you often don't have people in the aisle that's pitching against your competitors Correct. on a shelf. So what are you guys doing? You mentioned having troops on the ground. Mm-hmm influencer marketing, how do you accomplish the educational piece? Unfortunately, you can't record podcasts all the time that allow us to record for as long as we want. Exactly. No, and that's been a a learning experience. I don't think anyone has the right answer. I think marketing in general, whether you're a product or a services service, excuse me, is, is so rapidly changing. I mean, you see it with with what you're doing personally and, and for your business of how you market yourself, right? Yep. That has morphed significantly in the last five years. Yep. Even how your products and your brands that you support market have, mm-hmm. s- have significantly pivoted. So I think it's a, it's a challenge and it's an opportunity for new brands, right? I think it's all about authenticity, talking to people who really care, not just talking to people. Yeah. Um, I think Digital platforms have given us the ability to isolate who we think is really worth talking to and then learning if that, if that demo is actually responding or, or you, who you think you should be talking to really isn't who you should be talking to. So for us, we, you, we believe right now through what we've tested is there's two very different sides of our business. One is retail, 
and one is brand awareness. Mm -hmm. You can't ask each of them to do both. So mm -hmm. we have very specific retail taxes we do in store, whether it's price promotions or end caps or direct mail that drive direct to retail. The other side is all your education, and that's where digital comes in. What we've seen is that if we put branded messaging out, even though our content we believe is, is, is good content, click-through and engagement is still not as high as if it's third-party or influencing word of mouth. Yep. So we have morphed everything. Instead of buying Facebook campaigns for us to you know, hit reach and frequency with our videos, we've said we want to get product in people's hands, let them use it, and then we want them to use their voice, the voice that's grown their following, to talk about us. Yeah. If it's not our talking points, that's okay. Yeah. But we want to drive authentic traffic back to our web to learn about us. And we believe, we've seen that engagement and click-through and all that is significantly higher, whether when it's Paul talking about authentically, this is why I use Warrior versus Warrior saying this is why you should use Warrior. Yeah. I think it's two very different thought processes. One of our portfolio companies, Funding Circle, uh, sent out data to investors around modern marketing and how many tactics there are yeah. and channels where you can spend on influencer marketing, social media, which is probably more mainstream now than alternative, sure. probably five years ago as it was considered. But the data now still suggests that the most powerful conversion metrics come from word of mouth sure. by far. Word of mouth, 70% conversion plus often because that's your most trusted source sure. is your neighbor who's telling you, hey, I love Correct. this. Um, and direct mail, believe it or not, still converts really high. And, and I mean, we consider the post office defunct. We look at just anything handwritten as less efficient than typed. Mm. But direct mail is still powerful. Are you guys direct mailing or no? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Am I off? No, I, I, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. You, you live this, right? Yeah. If you, and you do it to be, you've, you've done it to Bill Belichick. Right. If you write an email to Bill or if you send him a handwritten thank you note, what do you think is more impactful? Yeah, well, he'll write a handwritten thank you note to my handwritten thank you note. Exactly. And we'll go back and forth and I'll just be like, okay, coach, you win. Yeah. But it's, it's yeah. significantly more powerful. Yeah. It's this, it's, I, I don't think there's like rocket science behind it. It's just, it's, it, the ease to do it isn't there. It's it just, costs money. It costs more money, but I think, you know, it, it's like penny wise, dollar foolish, or whatever, whatever that saying is, yeah. right? Like, that's where we've kind of sup, sit back and say, yeah, we can, it's like we've talked internally about, we've met with agencies that are like, we can get reach and frequency with pre-roll and banner ads. And they're like, and I'm like, well, how are you going to get your reach? Well, we're going to man mandate that people watch the pre-roll. And I'm like, that infuriates me as a user of YouTube. Yeah. If I have to watch an ad before the content I really want to watch, hmm. that's like, like it's you, tough. It's tough. So I'm like, I, instead of going that route and saying I can pepper people with my message when they don't really want to hear my message, or I can use third-party advocacies or influencers or all of these other direct mail tactics where I can give people information through a conduit that they want to re receive inf information from. Hmm. I think direct mail works because it's, it's physically something in your hand and you can put your why on it, right? Like this is why I'm sending this to you and here's the offer for you to actually try. Yeah. You know, I think it even, it does work with email, but I, I, I do think something handwritten or, or Well, you're tangible. taking notes here. We, we acknowledged it to start the show. 
because there's the comprehension component to it and taking a piece of mail and opening it and seeing a deal that makes sense to you. And a lot of it has comes down to luck and timing. Or are they out of their current mm-hmm. laundry uh, products? And, and if so, you maybe got them at the right time. And other times they're just like, hey, this is the right deal. Let me try sure. it. People want sure. to experience new things. I, I will say what what has to work in those pre-roll campaigns is you have to grab the audience quickly and it has to be something unique. And I know that from a branded content standpoint, you guys have been working on uh, a campaign over the past year that you're still fleshing out. Sure. Um, and it may be out there by the time this podcast <laughs> drops, but it is a co-founder of Hex, like one that I'm sitting across the table from, completely naked <laughs> with... The bag of hex covering your package. And I call it millennial marketing. I see it now living in New York City on the subways especially because those are where all the millennials are transporting on a day-to-day basis. And every brand, brands that I see um, out public facing are using different strategies in the subway focused on that demographic they know is in the subway. Sure. And I know your demo that you're targeting is millennials and this millennial marketing is often more risky, irreverent sure. and, you know, eye catching and it has to be quick. Yeah. I mean, what's have, the deal? You got naked. Was that your idea? <laughs> it was a, a collaboration of ideas. The, the insight is like, Hey, what if we took things to an extreme measure, right? Our low hanging fruit is, is the point of sweat, right? That's where we want to, get people to think about changing this habitual laundry habit of uh, should you be using something else and do it at the point of sweat, be at spin classes, be at things like that. So the insight is let's, let's go to an extreme measure, right? And say that what if things got so bad that people couldn't clean their clothes that they've resorted to working out naked? We thought that was a really funny insight that gets to the why we do what we do very quickly. Like you can't get your stuff clean. It stinks. So you've resorted to working out naked. It's kind of comical. Yeah. So we did some work. It is comical. So we did some work and shot some footage and it came out very good, but it came out very scripted. Yeah. So we've had, we've had it for, I don't know, eight months. And then we were like, there's something missing here. So we've, we've, we looked into a number of different options to intro it. And that's where, what you're referring to is there's a number of different intros we've shot, some more risque than others, because we believe that me standing in the perfect laundry room with the perfect folded laundry does not make me think differently about laundry. What we want to do is say, say to people, why, are we, why, are, why aren't we making a change here? And saying that to the people who actually understand very clearly the problem that we're solving. In major market cities where millennials are living, are they still going to public laundromats? Yes. Is that a place where you're going to go? Mm-hmm. So does that cost money? Like, can you just like set up a pop-up shop on a day-to-day basis? I think that's why we like gorilla, right? I think we like, I don't think it's like we have to play a different game, right? We're not going to be able to say, oh, we're going to sponsor your laundromat. We're just going to show up and give you, give you samples, give you a coupon. I think you have to play a different ball game and not be disrespectful, but just be at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And we believe that. You know, sporting events is, a, you know, a lacrosse tournament is a great place to be because not only do you have the problem, you also have the purchaser there watching. So is it a mom or a dad there that you can, you can interact with? And I, and I think the days of setting up a tent and, and waiting for people to come there are gone. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, you need to be different. You need to come with branded attire and you need to come 
you know, have fun with it. Right. That's where I think in the past, he's like, we have to, we have to operate in these traditional silos of how you market. And I think it's, it's dead. I think you have to have fun with it. You have to have your own, your own spin on it and, and run with it. And that's what we're trying to do now. And that's why we've been looking into some more edgy content and hopefully it's comical, not, you know, crude, offensive, offensive. And I don't believe yeah, it, I don't is. Think it's, it it's, is either. You know, the, the, the funny part is we have, our package is very unique and, and, yeah. and everything about our product is unique. The, we picked the package cause it ships well and we're in a dot com era and things are going to keep moving there. Yeah. Bottles do not ship. It's in a, it has a tap, like a wine tap. What's your relationship really, like with Amazon right now? It's interesting. It's a, it's a, we're still learning the space because yeah. right? you can work direct with Amazon through Vendor Central or you can work with third-party sellers like Seller Central. It's interesting. There's different pricing. There's different controls you have on either side. Right. Um, it's an interesting marketplace. Are you worried about voice software through Alexa continuing to become more ubiquitous and them leveraging that point of sale through their shopping lists and white labeling all products. Sure. I think, I mean, I see it in, in, in retail. I mean, like, like stores like Wegmans, Wegmans are beautiful stores, but they do a insane amount of business of own brand yep. and they do it because of the margin, right? Right. If I can, if I can make my own detergent instead of sell you and Tide and I, people buy it, they're going to keep doing it. Yep. I mean, and that's been going on for years. For years. I mean, yeah. it's the same I'll thing. I'll buy Safeway brand, Target sure. brand stuff. Some, some you have more, more faith in than others. And that's, that's, that's all based by brand. Like you may buy Wegmans private label, but you may never buy giant private label or wh- whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. You just may have more faith. They're all probably made by the same third party vendor. It's just a different like bottled water. Right. Do you think it's going to become from a retail standpoint, CPG, a race to get exclusivity? with those third-party vendors and I, I mean that costs a lot of money right so so i'm thinking more holistically is is that how amazon eventually takes over the world i mean i think i think amazon's going to continue to grow in the cpg space i yeah. think you look at what walmart just did they just purchased jet yeah because they're trying to figure it out is that 3.3 billion or right. 3.1 billion you're seeing yeah. what dollar shave club's doing people are trying to figure mm-hmm. it out and i think the more you can create an ease to purchase value add make people feel like they're part of a community those are all things where where our generation is going to continue to to generate or to gravitate towards right like i think the dot-com experience even with shopping right you can order rent the one way you can order a ten thousand dollar dress wear it one night and send it back or never wear it and no no dollars are exchanged other than your you know, your monthly fee or whatever versus 10 years ago, you'd have to like, you're going to buy a $10,000 dress. Yeah. I mean, it's changing retail. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of change. That's, I mean, I think, I don't think it's for us, it's not a war between retail and it's com. It's, it's, it's optimizing which one makes most sense. And if in 10 years from now, re- people don't buy laundry detergent at retail and we're not going to be there. Yeah. How are you staying current and or, um, keeping up with your specific market through consumption of content, where do you look for a lot of um, the knowledge that you're gathering regularly? You mean from a content pr- production? Yeah. Are you consuming podcasts, books? Are you subscribing to newsletters? Are you just out there reading 
right? I mean, well, the, the, yeah. it's, it's, it's obvious that your level of intake is far and wide, and it has to be when you're running a company in the space that you're in. I mean, much like we started off talking in the beginning of the show, is like reading and I, my reading comprehension <laughs> lacks significantly okay. unless it's something I have real interest in or unless I can get a sh- short article and video, then, I, then I'm good. Um, I did six, eight months ago join or, or worked with a guy that had, you know, six or eight guys in a business group that met, met once a week. And we kind of, you know, there was some um, vulnerability there. You kind of opened up about challenges and, and, you know, what you're working on is, you know, well, for me it was fitness, it was health, and it's things I'm still trying to implement. It was about putting a great routine in. So I have, have not read a full book since middle school and they made me at Odyssey. And it yeah. was like Great Gatsby or something like that. Yeah. But most recently, I mean, there's just, just like um, – they're all books that all these guys like Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss, right. That are ascent. I, what I gather from them all is they're all about positive routines and positive thinking more so than here's what you do. Yep. Which I find, you know, I, I think it's, it always becomes much more simple than you really think it should be. Do you have a daily routine or by nature, do you embrace inconsistent routines? I comprehend the need for it. I've internalized it that it makes a lot of sense, right? My morning should be getting things done that make my day productive, not waking up and being like I'm behind and writing an email on the way to the office. Which I think I I feel very often. Two huge, very different starts to your day. I struggle terribly, but I do comprehend the change I need to make. Mm-hmm. So the books have been, you know, one's The Slight Edge, which I actually read because we had to for this group last year, which was tough because we had to come prepared to talk about it, which yep. brought me back to my like hate for school before Odyssey. Yep. But it was a, it was good because I'm 32. I can handle that, right? And The Slight Edge is written by Jeff Olson. It is. And I'm going to leave it with you. With me? Yeah, I am. And, and what are some slight takeaways? Again, it was all... Routine based tactics, yeah. yeah. It's all about routines and. Um, do you meditate? How do you keep mindfulness amidst all of the challenges and responsibilities? I've tried it, um, basically through our conversations. Yeah, but um, it, again, routines a, a challenge. So yeah, that, that it's it's something I see value in. I just uh, ha- haven't implemented that routine, and it's it's uh it's going to happen though. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've traveled the world. Sure. Primarily because of lacrosse. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite destinations you've been to? Favorite destinations. Um, I love Toronto. Huh? And we've played a, a lot of city. Yeah. Played a lot of games in Toronto in the Air Canada center. Um, the keg steakhouse fond memories. Of, yeah. Of, of I was, that was going to be my follow up. What is your recommendation? In some of these areas. So we have Toronto and the keg. Um, that was a favorite, um, Denver. Yeah. You know, I played indoor and outdoor. Well, there. Let's, t- let's take us Denver. out of the, let's take us out of North America. Oh, sure. You didn't specify that. Last okay. <laughs> uh, Japan in college. We went to Japan. There you go. Yeah. Junior year. We stayed, uh, what was the name of that? Uh, Rapungi. It was nuts. A lot of fun. Was that a hotel? No, it was a, it was a city or okay. an area we, we hung out in. It was 
Japan was great, really, you know, just to see a different culture and how they act so differently than us. Hopefully there's a Rapungi hotel, so I'm not... There's not a Rapungi hotel. Completely embarrassed by my lack of Japanese geography. Uh, no, it's a... Uh, it was, we stayed in uh, Rapungi and Shibuya were the areas. I don't remember the hotel name. But they were great. That was with UMBC, and that was... I think they do it every four years. So they, the least they did when Zim was there. Um, Prague. You were in Prague. Yep. That was an incredible Beautiful trip. city. So we did that with the U.S. indoor team. And England. Yeah. Right? England was great because that was the, the 2010 world team. So, you know, I think lacrosse, though, for me, it hasn't been a monetary windfall. has been a relationship windfall and a travel experience and door opening um, mechanism that would no, can't be replicated. Yeah. And... I think emphasized though in the way that you talk about your business and the way you approach it is throughout our conversation, you've used win and like, can we win in this space? We'll never win if we do this. Sure. To me, that feels like crossover from sports and something that without sports, you probably wouldn't have at least that, that mindset or that, that drive ambition to not only do well, but do really, really well. Uh, definitely. I don't think, I think a lot of what's happened, like sometimes I try and even though like with hex or with sports, I may not be exactly where I want to be, but if I take a second and look back and be like, Hey, that was pretty crazy that we did this, this, then this in the last three years. Right. I didn't know if that was going to like, you know, before a financial raise actually happened, I didn't know if it was really going to happen. Right. And then it does. And that's like, okay, what's next? So for me, I just hope as I keep moving forward that, you know, whether it's lacrosse or business or whatever, that, you know, you hope you make the U.S. team, then you make it, then it's okay, what's next? And I hope I continue to do that way and, or, or operate that way instead of being like, you know, hopefully I'm at a level sometime, sometime where I've achieved plenty, but still looking to, for, you know, what's next. Yeah. Um, and I hope that's a mindset I keep. Um, because I never thought I would have played lacrosse as long as I did for, and have the opportunities I did. Yep. And sometimes I don't think Hex is going to make it to the next month, and here we are. So. Yeah. Well, it's great. I think it's a great place to end. Yeah. Continually driven to sure. achieve while also appreciating what you've accomplished. It's a fine balance, but really difficult to get to. If you're in one place or the other, or the other exclusively, you're going to fall short. Thanks. Agreed. Thank you. Have you had breakfast? I haven't eaten yet. Are you interested? I never do breakfast. We should add that. You think? To your yeah, to your daily routine. I, I think, definitely think I so. I think I should do You know where the origin of breakfast comes from? No, I do not. Breaking from your fast, which is the eight hours hopefully we're getting the night before, or sometimes six to eight is ideal. Uh, but yeah, well, then it's, I think a, it it's critical, be, right? I it's, think we should do coffee in the morning. Maybe a, I had a juice from Starbucks and then maybe a breakfast lunch. So I can so a brunch. continue this. So that's actually called a brunch. <laughs> no, I want to, I want to break from my fast is still continuing. Yeah. From, from last night. So the fast yeah. needs to be in there. Let's end our fast. At lunch. It's about lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks buddy. Okay. Back from breakfast with Drew, and I am wrapping up this podcast with our outro. What an incredible conversation. Honestly, the purpose of this show was to uncover the duality 
of the modern athlete and representative of that, Drew Westervelt, being a current all-star professional lacrosse player and an all-star entrepreneur. That'll do it for this edition of Suiting Up with Paul Rabel. Thanks to our sponsor. Please support them the way they support this show. Also, make sure to subscribe to Suiting Up with Paul Rabel on either Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. And as always, I'll catch you next week. 